0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, Those who don't know me, because you haven't seen me, because I don't go to this service, I'm Stuart. (laughs) I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, please help us to understand your word and apply it to our own lives this morning. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to start in 1 Chronicles 21. You might have thought, hang on, we're looking at David. Isn't he in Samuel? Well, Chronicles is the other version of David's life. So we're going to start there. 1 Chronicles 21, and work our way through a couple of chapters and then jump a bit after that. <clears throat> I want to take you back in time to uh, this 69 AD, about 40 years after Jesus' death. And the Romans are sick of uh, the Jewish zealots and sick of the Jews, uh, sort of snubbing their faces and throwing up their arms and saying, we're better than you. So eventually they send Titus, the emperor's son, to come and capture Jerusalem and to take it. And Titus surrounds the city on all four sides. He attacks from the north and uh, has great siege machines and huge numbers of soldiers advancing on Jerusalem to take it. Uh, The Jewish defenders fight like the devil. They're not going to give up. They're not going to give up uh, their city and especially they're not going to give up their temple. Sometimes they run along the walls as they fight the soldiers, shooting out arrows and sending out suicide squads to attack these siege machines and sort of to burn them before they can get near the walls. Eventually, however, the outer walls do form and five days later the inner walls fall as well. And Titus stops. I guess he's a reasonable man and he'd like the Jews to surrender peacefully. So he calls a ceasefire. In fact, it's actually payday. And so he parades his Roman troops outside the city walls about four days. They all dress up and they parade past and he gives them their money. But the Jews, again, won't give up. Those caught escaping the city are tortured and some are crucified on the hills around the city. So the Jews know what they're in for. Well, winter comes and famine and starvation set in and eventually Titus orders another all-out effort. This time they attack from the north and the Antonia Fortress is captured. The fortress is overlooking the temple. Uh, battering rams are brought to break down the western temple doors, but they fail. So Titus orders the uh, soldiers to burn down the doors, which they do. And in through the city, charging in come the Roman soldiers, hand-to-hand combat as they start to uh, take the temple itself. And as they do, the temple begins to burn. This is the third temple that's been built on this site and it begins to burn down. And as the flames engulf the sanctuary and its courts, the enormous limestone blocks on top of the temple explode and fall 60 metres below. That's a picture taken in April this year. And you can still see the remains of those temple blocks. 10,000 defenders are slain and the city finally falls. Today, if you go to Jerusalem, you do see what looks like a temple, but in fact it's an Islamic mosque on the temple site. There hasn't been a temple there for 2,000 years. Well, the question I want to ask this morning is, what's it all about? Why were the Jews hellbent on saving their temple? Uh, who built it in the first place? And more importantly, who didn't build it? And uh, why was it built? They had a tabernacle that was working perfectly well to offer sacrifice to God. Why build the temple? And most importantly, you want to see what it's got to do with a holy God's relationship with a very unholy people. Well, that's where we're going, so let's jump in. Stuart touched uh, in the last couple of weeks on uh, David's dysfunctional family. They weren't too good. And all we need to say at this stage is that two of the sons made a shot at being king, but both failed. And Solomon is snuck away by David and is anointed by a prophet uh, to become David's successor. After a few more victories, David secures Uh, The other tribes around him and it looks like Abraham's promises have come true God's people in God's land under the rule and blessing of God there's peace in the land although David is still a man of war so what does David do well if we have a look at 21 verses 1 and 2 we see what happens Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel so David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Bathsheba down the bottom to Dan in the top, and report back to me, so that I may know how many there are. Notice that uh, Satan incited David to take the sentence. Nothing wrong with the census. But Dave, what David had in mind was to count how many troops he had, how great he was. Back in Exodus, it had always been told not to take a census because God was the king. He was the real king behind the throne and that he ruled over people, not the the king or the the judge in power. And so David found that he was in a difficult position. So when we get down to uh, verse 7, I think we read this. Uh, This command was evil in the sight of God. So he punished Israel. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. It was a foolish thing. And there was a punishment involved with him being a fool. David's offered a choice of three punishments. Sounds like the three things you find in a, you know, the troll under the bridge sort of story. But here's the three punishments. Three years of famine... Three months of an enemy attacking or three days of the plague? What would you choose? Well, David chooses three days of the plague for a a real reason. Um, He says, I'm in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is very great. He knows from previous experience, especially with his affair with Bathsheba, that God is both a God of judgment He's fair, but he's also a God of mercy. And so he asks for the plague to come. 70,000 people die in two days with this plague. It raises that whole question, doesn't it? The one behind this. How can we, broken and sinful people, who don't even live up according to our own standards, ever stand in the midst of a holy God? How can we do that if God punishes even his people like this? Well, God actually sends an angel to punish them. And uh, the angel stands there, sword drawn, we're told, between heaven and earth. And God looks down and calls to the angel, stop, enough, withdraw your hand. We're told that the angel is standing on the threshing floor of Ornan, or Runa, you can either call them either, uh, the Jebusite. And we see the elders in sackcloth and ashes repenting before God and David pleading for God to punish him and not his people. He's seen it before, hasn't he, when God punished that boy born to him through Bathsheba and he had to wait that time till the boy died. And God listens to David's plea. He says to David, right where you are, on this threshing floor, Build an altar, offer a sacrifice. Now, this threshing floor is on a high place where the wind can catch the chaff. If David's uh, palace is here, up the hill is this threshing floor right on top. And uh, that's the place where David offers the sacrifice in the heart of Jerusalem. And Ornan thinks that David's going to come and take it. Well, he's the king, you know, he can do whatever he likes. So he says to David, hey, look, you, you can have it. It's yours. You can even have some ox as well to, to offer the sacrifice. But David insists on buying the field, buying the threshing floor, buying the oxen. He knows that a sacrifice won't be a gift if it's uh, not going to cost him something. He probably remembers Cain when he offered that sacrifice. It was pretty weak. It was second best. And he knows that God didn't accept that. So he buys the threshing floor and he buys the oxen and he builds an altar and he offers a burnt offering to atone for sin and he offers a peace offering to bring back a a healthy relationship between God and his people. He understands that the death of 70,000 doesn't atone for sin, only that a prescribed sacrifice of God where blood is spilt with an approved substitute would atone for that sin. So David calls out to the Lord and God answers with fire from heaven and burns up the offerings. Verse 27 we read, Then the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back in his sheath. From judgment to mercy and grace. The fire from heaven answered a question that David had been asking for a long time. His heart had been burning Where did God want this temple to be built? Where did God want this place to be built? Back in Psalm 132, uh, David writes this. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will not allow sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Now the fire from heaven answered David's request. This was the place. This threshing floor on top of the hill is a place where this temple is to be built. Why? Well, Ornan's threshing floor was on a mountain. It was a place bought with mercy. It was a place where God's justice was evident. It was a place where sin was confessed. and It was a place where sacrifice was accepted. And 22 and verse 1, we read, Then David said, The house of the Lord God is to be here, and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Well, What do we take away from this part of the story? Well, I think there's two things that stand out. Uh, firstly, God is holy. We, we can't approach God in our own terms. We can't do stuff and think we're going to get away with it. God is Bigger than us, he's stronger, he's more powerful and he's far more pure in heart than we are. We can't pretend to be equals with him and try to do a deal with him. God is holy and we are a sinful people. And secondly, despite David's pride and despite this fearful plague and judgment, this is the way God chooses to dwell with his people. Here where God's judgment was turned away, here is a place where the temple is going to be built. So David offers a sacrifice on this place, the first of many. Or is it? 2 Samuel. Sorry, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 reads this. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David. Mount Moriah, ring any bells? Well, if you know your Old Testament really well, you'll know that's the mountain that uh, Abraham took Isaac up to offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord. And as he raises a knife, God says to Abraham, stop, and he provides another sacrifice so that Isaac might live. So on that day with Abraham and on this day with David, on these same hills with Jesus, this is the place where God would seed sacrifice and turn away from wrath from his people. But David, you remember, is a man of war. He can't build this temple. 2 Samuel chapter 7, remember Nathan says to him, no, you can build a palace but not the temple. He can, however, make plans and provide the labour and the materials and bankroll the whole project. So in chapter 22, we read from verse uh, 2. And uh, again, you might be able to see it there, but I'll read it here. It's much bigger. <laughs> so David gave orders us to assemble the aliens living in Israel. Uh, from among them, he pointed stone cutters to prepare dressed stone for buildings, the house of God. He provided a large amount of iron to make nails for the doors of the gateways and for the fittings and more bronze than could be weighed. He also provided more cedar logs than could be counted for the Sidonians and Tyrians had brought large numbers of them to David. David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendour in the sight of all nations. Therefore, I will make preparations for it. So David made extensive preparations before the Lord. And jumping down to verse 14, I have taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord, a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, quantities of bronze, iron, too great to be weighed, and wood and stone, and you may add to them. The money spent here is equivalent to about $5 Australian dollars 5 billion that's a lot of money that David pours into the plans for this temple and you can imagine an older wiser David or well, sometimes wise David with the younger man Solomon pouring over every detail together and in verses 6 to 10 we see them doing that and then he called to his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord the God of Israel David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me, You have much blood shed and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him from all the enemies on every side, and his name will be Solomon. And I'll grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forevermore. No wonder Solomon asked for wisdom later on in life to build such a grandiose temple as this. And the pressure is on, isn't it? There's a sense here that if Solomon fails with this temple, David also fails. And his kingship has is, is been meaningless. So he charges Solomon in verse 13 be strong and courageous. And he does that because he says, Look, I've had a personal faith, personal trust in God. You too need to have that personal trust. In verse 7, he says, Build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. My God is your God, not just a God that we worship. This is very personal, and not just about reputation, it's not just about legacy. And for the next few chapters in Chronicles, there's endless details. You can read it, if you like, about the temple his son is going to build. But Solomon knows what's going on here. Even though you could be bound in the details, Solomon gets the bigger picture. He knows that this temple is pointing towards something else. And so in, in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 5, let me read these verses to you. 2 Chronicles chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6. This is what Solomon says. The temple I am going to build will be great because our God is greater than all other gods. But who is able to build a temple for him? Since the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain him. Who then am I to build a temple for him except as a place to burn sacrifices before him? Solomon knows this temple really doesn't contain the presence of God. God's presence is far too big for that. He builds it looking forward to the presence of God coming amongst them. That's why when Jesus stands in the temple, the third temple, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. He's not talking about the physical temple. He's talking about his body. That's what Solomon was looking forward to, the time of Jesus We're told in Hebrews that Jesus is not only the temple, he's the one who makes the sacrifice in the temple and he's also the sacrifice himself. And instead of praying to a place where you might be heard in heaven, heaven has come to earth in Jesus. And because of him, we have perfect access to the Father. Later in the New Testament, we read from Ephesians as we read before, about that. Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners. That's good, isn't it? No longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, the foundation. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We, citizens from every nation and country, are the temple of Christ. We are filled with his spirit. This is how a holy God can dwell with an unholy people. Because he invades us from the inside out. His spirit dwells within us and makes us different and makes us holy. The Jews in AD 70 fought with their lives to defend the temple. What they didn't realise as the temple was burning was that God had already left. How do we experience God's presence? By believing in the name of Jesus and letting his spirit dwell in us and change our lives. When Solomon finally built his temple, He built it according to the way the tabernacle was built and he built the holy place or the holy of holies which ended up being a nine by nine metre box and you can see a sort of a, a diagram of it there with the Ark of the Covenant inside. Later on towards the end of the Old Testament, Habakkuk writes these words, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, through the coming of Jesus, uh, we, uh, we no longer have a nine-by-nine-metre box. Remember, that the curtain was torn in two in the temple, revealing that the presence of God wasn't there because the presence of God was in Jesus himself. And now we're told that uh, in Habakkuk, that the presence of God will extend to the ends of the earth and we're invited to join into his presence Jesus is a true temple. He's now ascended into heaven. But God continues in the lives of Christians in our fallen world. His temple is now the body of believers, both individually and corporately. We here are the temple. We are the body of Christ. Although we know God through his spirit, that knowledge is limited. We long to know more. And there's a great hope filled out for us in that final book of Revelation, uh, where John has a vision of the holy city of Jerusalem. And uh, he sees a picture like this. He sees the city as being a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies in that first temple. But this is no nine by nine metre box. This cube is 2,200 kilometres square. It's as large as a known world in John's day. And the point is very clear. There's no special place where you go to meet with God. No cathedral, no St. Peter's in Rome holds the presence of God. It's not concentrated in any church, any holy place. If you want to meet God, you'll meet him in his presence, in Jesus and in his people. Let me read to you finally from the book of Revelation. Chapter 21, verses 22 to 23. I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. There will be no distance now between God and his people and we will know him perfectly. What a wonderful picture that is. And it all begins with a foolish old man wanting to trumpet his own achievements in taking a census or well, what can we take home from all of this well I think a couple of things firstly God can bring our foolish sinful desire to bring glory to himself can't he that's good news I make foolish decisions every day of my life and God can still use me to bring about his purposes and to glorify himself David is not alone here Secondly, salvation is always costly. It's not cheap grace, is it? Sacrifices are involved. Isaac, the pure lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus himself. Sacrifices culminate with the death of Jesus. Sin costs. It costs us our lives, but thank God, God provides that perfect substitute in Jesus. And thirdly, the fame of God, his name and his glory now includes the Gentiles. You saw that from our Ephesians reading. Foreigners were brought in to build the temple, but they weren't allowed into the temple. In Jesus' days, there was an outside court, the court of the Gentiles, but you couldn't go past the door to get nearer to that Holy of Holies. You were forbidden But now we read that the Gentiles are within the boundaries of God's love. Again, let me read to you from Ephesians. You are no longer strangers to God, foreigners in heaven. You are members of God's very own family. You are citizens of God's country and belong to God's household. That's great news for us, isn't it? We who aren't Jews, who weren't originally the people of God, are now the people of God. Thank God that he invited us into his family so that we too can look forward in hope to being in his presence forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the temple. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. And thank you that you call us to be living sacrifices. Daily, coming to terms with sin and repenting and being cleansed by you and drawn closer and closer into your presence, and one day standing there, not shivering with fear, but running into the arms of Jesus because of what he's done for us. Thank you for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.